to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. California wildfires present a serious public safety concern, create fear of serious loss for many, and cost millions of dollars to defend. In California, each fire is given a name. We devote this edition of Radio Curious to the Lodge fire that occurred in Mendocino County, California in August 2014. We visit with four Mendocino County people who meet the public need at times of crisis. We begin with Mary Eigner, Program Director of KZYX and KZYZ, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, the public radio station where Radio Curious was originally broadcast beginning in 1991. We begin this program with Mary Eigner describing the role of community radio when a wildfire occurs. This portion was recorded on August 29, 2014. Well, when there's an ongoing fire like the Lodge Fire, we give very regular updates to people, especially while it's active and containment is still low and conditions are such that you don't know what's happening with the fire, obviously, as containment increases and the threat to, um, you know, people and property decreases, those ongoing regular announcements become less frequent. They're less important. What is the source of the information that you were able to share with the community? Well, you know, it depends. As, as a fire is happening, it has sort of a trajectory that it goes by when a fire is first breaking out. Obviously, there's not a lot of information, and as it becomes larger and becomes more of a concern, it will be assigned an incident command, and there'll be a public information officer. They'll have regular briefings, and they'll send those out to the media. So we'll get those, and then once that happens, also there's a communications office, and you can contact um, those people to get, to get information more than just what's in the regular briefings. When an incident is small or just breaking out, it's, it's a little trickier. Um, in an emergency, often it's difficult, especially with smaller, more localized incidents, because, say, it's a local fire department responding you know, everyone there is their their priority is responding to the incident and dealing with it, not necessarily communicating with local media. Tell us about the information that you're able to receive from people who are in the fire area and call the station. Yeah, you know that I'm glad you brought that up because Mendocino County, you know, is rather large and very spread out, and often it's it's hard for us, especially when something is just starting out to, you know, unless you're sitting around using, listening to a scanner or constantly scanning the Internet in those agencies to know something is happening. So oftentimes the first time we hear about an incident is from somebody in the local area, and they'll contact us either by, you know, calling the station office or studio or um, emailing to let us know something's happening, and then once that happens, we can follow up with a contact you know, appropriate authorities um, get information and get accurate information because oftentimes you have to vet it and make sure what somebody says on the phone might not be actually what's really happening. 
So radio still has a role to play in helping inform people in emergency situations. Well, Mary Eigner, thanks for sharing this information with us. And may I ask you about a book that you could recommend to our listeners? My favorite book that I recommend to everyone when the subject arises is um, 1491 by Charles Mann. It's a really remarkable book and uh, really changed the way that I think about um, indigenous uh, culture and civilizations in the Americas prior to uh, the Columbian Exchange. Thanks very much for joining us on Radio Curious. You're quite welcome, Barry. That was Mary Eigner, Program Director of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. Next, we visit with Chris Rowney, the Mendocino Unit Chief with CAL FIRE, California's statewide firefighting agency. We began our conversation, also recorded on August 29, 2014, when I asked him to describe his job during a large-scale wildfire. In terms of my specific role, uh, first off is is uh, making an initial decision whether or not to uh, uh, the 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 nature of the fire itself exceeds our capabilities at the local level to handle it and in this particular instance uh, we would try normally to at least get through one what we call burn operating period which is essentially during one entire burning period of a day before making a determination that really it exceeds our capabilities. This one clearly, uh, it was reported just a little, almost a little bit before 7 a.m. Um, on the 30th, and uh, by 2 o'clock we realized that we, uh, because of accessibility issues and the nature of the terrain where uh, actually two fires were located in the uh, uh, South Fork of the Eel, that it was going to uh, far exceed our abilities uh, to handle the fires on our own. How do you get the fire crew onto the ground? Well, most of the time we simply drive to them, um, you know, but in lightning isn't, isn't as uh, kind to us sometimes in its uh, locations. How many crews did you have on the ground at the maximum? You know, probably in excess of 50 because um, we run 24-hour shifts, so at any given time, I think at one time we had 2,500 people total assigned to the incident. Um, and so at any given time, there would be probably in the neighborhood of 1,200 people assigned on a, on a given day. Uh, that would include, um, there were six California National Guard uh, crews assigned to it, uh, excluding the uh, eight National Guard uh, helicopters. Are there any women crew members actually fighting the fire? Actually, that's that's an interesting point. Uh, the California National Guard crews that came up, uh, they were uh, hand crews. Uh, they were what we call a Type 2 crew, so they're, so they're primarily more on the cold uh, fire trail side. Um, but there were several female members of the um, National Guard that, that were crew members. There were two crews of uh, female inmates out of Rainbow Camp in Southern California that came up. Uh, and, of course, there's any number of uh, female fire captains, uh, FAEs, uh, fire apparatus engineers, and firefighters, uh, both in this unit and throughout the state on uh, both local agencies as well as state agency uh, uh, apparatus that are and have been directly involved. And then, of course, the overhead, uh, there were, uh, there's, to, to run a, 
what what amounted to a city of 2,500 people there in Laytonville, that takes a great deal of logistical support that involved uh, both male and female personnel uh, dealing with logistics, finance, planning, everything. If a crew is working for 24 hours, what do you find the effects to be on the crew members? Well, they're you know they're paced, uh, but but first of all, we find uh, generally then this this is the Cal Fire approach. It is different on federal fires, uh, but uh, on on Cal Fire is found to be more a more effective application of time uh, because there is a fair amount of time just in getting a crew in and out of where they need to work, and then and then they're put on a 24 uh, essentially a rest cycle. So they get lots of rest, and of course the work period itself is paced so that they can can work through the 24-hour period, um, getting good rest and, and good nutrition, uh, making sure they have enough water, all those logistical items to make sure they can uh, maintain function. But we are have to be very sensitive, of course, that they not be excessively tired and create safety problems. So it's a, it's a careful balance of work and rest to assure, A, that, that we remain productive, but also that, that we remain safe. Does each crew member carry his or her own uh, food and water, or are they brought in for the group? Depends on the circumstances. Uh, sometimes uh, we'll fly in, uh, particularly water, of course, because of our we have a basic standard, one quart per hour. Um, and that's a lot of water to be carrying around on a 24-hour period. So if we have crews that are sighted um, that are a long hike in, we may uh, do sling loads with a helicopter into them to provide provisions so that they're not having to tire themselves out carrying a tremendous amount of, uh, of uh, support uh, materials such as water and food. Uh, engines, they'll pick up their lunches and so forth at the beginning of the shift and be out and be fully ready to go for the entire shift. Where does the almost $40 million to pay for this uh, effort come from? Uh, it comes out of uh, the legislature authorizes what's called the emergency fund, which actually is a, has a limitation but at, uh, or, or is a certain amount of money to start with at the beginning of fire season with the recognition that every fire season is unique in terms of the number of fires and the cost of those fires. Um, and, uh, you know, so some fires are uh, less expensive because they're more uh, accessible, but they may get uh, fairly big. Uh, but when you're working with, uh, through the, the mutual aid system and, and Cal uh, Office of Emergency Services and their system, um, when you pick up uh, engines from other agencies, uh, they have uh, certain rates that have to be paid based on their wages and the cost of their apparatus, and so that varies depending on the nature of the agency. Do you find that the drought in California in 2014 has an effect on fires like this? In in really a couple of senses. Uh, first off, uh, they tend to, uh, in this particular fire, we saw immediately, A, that uh, it spotted easily, um, so it didn't, sometimes uh, we'll get ignition components, uh, which is really a measure of how easily a, a, a fire brand, when, uh, when a lighting in a fuel bed, how frequently it will um, ignite a, a fire. Uh, so the ignition component was very high, I think in the uh, upper 90 percentile. 
But at the same time, um, the larger, heavier fuels being fairly dry also burned out. Uh, so we aren't seeing as many long-term smokes as we might have expected if the fuels were a little, uh, had, had a little more internal moisture in them. 200 years ago in California, uh, these fires would have burnt until they burned out. What's your thought on that being a remedy at this point? Um, that is one approach if you have enough land without the impact to other uh, uses of the land. Uh, people have homes up there. There are towns out there. There are highways. Uh, there is infrastructure of any number of sorts out there. So while from a wilderness perspective, the fire was actually um, could be looked at as a beneficial impact, a natural impact. It was naturally occurring and it burned somewhat naturally through the Eel River uh, watershed there. At the same time, it had the potential of serious impacts to other desirable uh, cultural sites, uh, the Heritage House and things like that, that were of concern and had cultural values uh, historic and prehistoric values. So uh, it's it's kind of a balancing act that we always play when we look at those values and associate it to the, the suppression effort. Well, Chris Roney, Mendocino Unit Chief for CAL FIRE, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, uh, quickly, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Uh, there's there's any number of them, and and uh, and of course, uh, when it relates to fires, a lot of us uh, do read uh, Young Men in Fire and some of the other John McLean books that deal with uh, fires where we've seen uh, a loss of life essentially through uh, uh, naturally uh, uh, fire events, and then kind of an analysis of what went right and wrong, and and they play an important role on and today how we approach firefighting. To, uh, because, of course, our first and most largest concern is the safety of the personnel involved. Chris Rowney, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. You bet. Chris Rowney is the Mendocino Unit Chief with CAL FIRE, the California State Firefighting Agency. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Now we hear from Mendocino County Sheriff Tom Allman whose job, in part, is to order an evacuation during a time of crisis. This conversation, also recorded August 29, 2014, began when I asked him how the decision to order a mandatory evacuation is made, and the public response thereto. I believe that people trust the government that we're, uh, we're trying to do the right thing and protect them. I, you know, it, the definition of trusting your government may, may be too many um, definitions for this, but as far as uh, protecting the, the public safety of saying, yes, we're doing this in the name of protecting you and protecting your property, I, I believe the answer to that would be uh, overwhelming yes. So when you called for an evacuation at, uh, during the time of the severity of the Lodge fire, what was the reaction? Well, the reaction was very supportive, but let me take a step back and say calling for an evacuation is not something that I would ever do lightly. Uh, I've done it three times in my career, and it, a great deal of uh, consultation goes in with the other experts to say, is this really what we need? Is this really what um, we have to do right now, or can we, can we wait 24 hours? Because advising people to leave the, uh, the sanctuary of their house 
that's a big deal. You can't take it lightly. And one of my jobs is to make sure people are prepared for it and, and make sure they understand um, why we're doing it as well as what they need to do, such as make sure you take your medication with you. Make sure that someone is going to take care of your pets and animals. Make sure that, you know, you're, you're not going to leave something at your house that you're absolutely going to need tonight before you go to bed. So preparing people for an evacuation is something we do uh, year-round. We at, at community meetings, we talk about it. And we, we talk about challenges we've had in the past and, and how people should prepare. But we also talk about what goes into our thought process of advising them to evacuate. Tell us about that. Well, advise them to evacuate. Um, some people may think, well, my house is going to loot it. Or why, why does the government want me to leave right now? So the answer to that, we have found, is giving the citizens 100% of the information we have and allowing them to make that choice. In Mendocino County, we've never had an evacuation where we've told people, if you don't leave your house, we're going to arrest you, because we're not going to do that. I, I'm a person who believes that if someone's paying taxes on their house and they want to defend their house, with our fire hose or whatever, by all means, they have that right. But I'm going to give them as much information as I have and allow them to make an intelligent choice of what they're going to do. So in 2012, we had a, a huge fire in Kovalo where approximately 20 houses were evacuated, and I believe only 15 of the families left. And all the, all the structures stood. Five families said, no, we're going to stay and defend our structure. And, all right, that's, that's up to you. But in, recently at the Lodge Fire, um, the vast majority of people did follow our advice of a mandatory evacuation. And we set up a, a, a place for them to have shelter at the high school in Leggett. And we made sure that our deputies were patrolling 24-7 the areas where we were going to have, where we did have the evacuated areas. We made sure people knew, make sure your gates are unlocked so we, the fire department doesn't have to cut a gate, cut a lock to come in. So giving a citizen as much information as possible, Barry, is the 100% way to have a, an evacuation that doesn't turn into a disaster itself. So how do you notify the people that it's time to evacuate? Well, we obviously the, the way to communicate to people is what, what media outlet do they listen to where they're going to get the most information. And in the northern part of the county, public radio, KZYX, as well as out of Garberville, KMUD, um, those two radio stations come in fairly well, so we made sure that information was relayed to the public radio stations through press releases, but also through social media such as Facebook and Twitter. And probably the biggest success we had was working with Reverse 911 and giving the information to the citizens um, in a very, very timely manner and giving them as much information of not only what we recommend they do, but where they should go to get more information. In determining that it's time to evacuate, what goes into that decision? Uh, the advice from the experts. So whether they're fire experts or earthquake experts or um, if we had an armed man running around, it would be, we would be relying on some of our tactical experts. But getting that information and giving it to the public, such as on the Lodge Complex fire, we knew the approximate speed of the fire. We knew the direction of the fire. We knew the forecast of where wind was coming. And so that's why we said, all right, these are areas, and they were very small areas, 
where we believe the people should evacuate, not just for fire, but also for the smoke damage or the smoke problems that they were going to have um, and and all the heavy traffic that was going to be on the roadway. So that's, that's what we base our evacuation. For the people who are evacuated, do you provide any protection from the smoke? Well, we try to have them go to a location where it's certainly not as smoky as where they were originally at. So we don't provide masks and, and air filters. We give them a, a much safer location to go to where they're hopefully not going to be affected by the smoke. What support do the evacuees get from uh, organizations outside of our community? We had an incredible positive response from the Red Cross as well as the Salvation Army. They responded to the Leggett High School. They were prepared with cots, with food, with uh, areas of, of comfort for the people. We also had a great response by the um, Animal Care Department here in Mendocino County, which is under social services. Uh, they brought temporary uh, shelters up for animals and pets that were being evacuated. So we, we saw a huge response, just like what we're currently seeing in Napa, of the resources going into Napa after the earthquake. We saw that type of response in Lake. That was Mendocino County Sheriff Tom Allman. Our last guest is Dr. Sharon Paulton, a physician in Laytonville, California, a small community in northern Mendocino County most affected by the Lodge fire. In this conversation recorded on September 1, 2014, Dr. Paulton describes the human health effects of forest fire smoke. It was like being a barbecued salmon on a stick. It was pretty intense at some point. And it really smelled like that, too. It wasn't, um, you know, a chemical smell or anything. It was, uh, and it depended whether it was burning in the understory or the crown. You could smell different uh, elements of the forest coming. What was the effect on the people who had to breathe the smoke-laden air? Well, you know, in the office, I was surprised how few people we saw for difficulties with asthma exacerbation or breathing in general I did fill lots and lots of inhaler refill requests, which I was glad to do. Uh, and people should know there's a couple kind of inhalers. So when the one's not working well enough, you got to go to your next uh, one in the plan. But I, we really didn't see, I might have seen one or two more people during that whole period uh, than I might have um, without the smoke. It was amazing. Well, because you saw so few, one or two more, would it be a fair assumption that the consequences of inhaling the smoke were minimal? Well, I hope I hope so, because, of course, we had a children's camp, and we had to send them home early because it was so intense at one point, um, just for safety. And so I think it's partly a matter of dose and duration, you know. So, uh, like, how bad is the air and how long are you breathing that bad air? I did see people who smoked or even just used nicotine in other ways, such as chew or an e-cigarette, having slightly more difficult time, which makes sense from a physiological point because of the, uh, well, when you smoke, you're placing monoxide on your red cells, too, so you're pre-loaded there, and then the... uh, Nicotine itself will affect ciliary function, those waving mucus elevator cells in the bronchi, and they aren't working well in people who use nicotine. So those people suffered worse. 
Is there anything that anyone can do to protect themselves during the time that they either have to stop breathing altogether or breathe smoke-laden air? Well, I think the best thing uh, was when people would escape the area because uh, I was trying to tell if there was much difference between the indoor and the outdoor air. Uh, They would say, stay inside and don't be physically active. But uh, if you had your doors or windows open at a certain time and the wind changed, your indoor air could be worse than the outdoor air. So um, uh, um, a friend, uh, I, I actually tried this, uh, suggested getting a um, one of those uh, high-resolution uh, filters and putting it over a box fan and seeing if that would partially clean the air because I've heard that air conditioners can actually clean air in the same way. I'm not sure if it made a difference. <laughs> the filter is not showing any signs of... Uh, collecting material. And some of the um, smoke uh, has particles that are ultra ultra small and even nano, and some of it is also uh, chemical, uh, maybe even monoxide. And you had people getting some headaches, and I was wondering whether that was a monoxide effect. After the fire subsided, did the smoke subside? Well, oh, and it was interesting, too. They were monitoring things, but you know, it really would depend where you put your monitor and which way the smoke was blowing. So you could have a, a, a morning where you're thinking, oh, this is better, finally. And then the afternoon uh, breeze would come in and um, it would be intense again. Or you could be fine down in Laytonville and uh, terrible up in Leggett or at our place five miles north of town. Uh, and then the wind would switch again. So. <laughs> so that brings up a point about the science is... Uh, you know, they were doing things like monitoring the air quality, and you could see the spikes at a certain time of day when the wind would pick up. Uh, but they were doing averages, which I found uh, useless. You know, who cares what the average air quality is? It's those spikes that we were feeling. So uh, my friend says, if you torture the data, they will confess. What are the symptoms that people should look for that would indicate they should seek medical help? Well, uh it, I think the headache uh, uh, could be a sign, especially the monoxide question, but really people with um, breathing problems or asthma, uh, they would feel all of that get worse. And if you want to be scientific, you could have a peak flow meter that you blow into, and it gives you an asthma number, and it tells you how tight are you, uh, how quickly can you blow out your air. And so when that drops, that's a sign that you need to uh, move ahead on your asthma plan or your COPD plan. (laughs) And finally, Dr. Sharon Paulton, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Oh, well, uh, I hope I can broaden the topic here for a minute, but what came to mind when you suggested I suggest a book was um, one called A Paradise Built in Hell by uh, Rebecca Solnit. Have you ever read that? No, I haven't. Oh, it's uh, really, I think it's very valuable. I actually gave a copy to our local fire department because the topic is uh, how people react to um, extreme emergencies. And sometimes um, wonderful things can come out of that kind of thing. And sometimes it's terrible or the government might make it worse. And so I think by studying each of these disasters or um, extreme situations, you can learn a lot and make things better or prepare for future emergencies. Well, Dr. Sharon Paulton, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. Hey, thanks for having me. That was Dr. Sharon Paulton of Laytonville, California. 
The book she recommends is The Paradise Built in Hell, The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster by Rebecca Solnit. The book Chris Rowney recommends is Young Men and Fires by Norman MacLean. And the book that Mary Eigner recommends is 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus by Charles C. Mann. This program was recorded on August 29th and September 1st, 2014. There are over 500 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, www.radiocurious.org, where they're free for you to stream, download, enjoy, and share. We appreciate your curiosity, ideas, comments, and questions. You may reach us by email, curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our associate producer, and I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.